Washington. Your children are not your children. They are the sons and the daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but they are not from you. And though they are with you, they belong not to you. Good evening, and welcome to another edition of On Parenting. They have their own thoughts. They have their Good evening, and welcome to On Parenting here at WPFW 89.3 Pacifica Radio in the nation's capital. And I'm your host, Jack Petrash, and this is our December show. The holiday time brings both gifts and challenges. It's a time for family and for children. It's a time for song and celebration. But it is also a time of stress. And with the deep and beautiful snow that's fallen upon our city, that stress can be multiplied. But stress in the lives of children is more than a seasonal occurrence. It's ongoing, and it's only made greater by the fast pace of our lives. Tonight, joining us to speak about stress in the lives of children and what we can do to help them, we have as our guest, Emery Luce Baldwin. Emery is a parent educator and a family therapist here in the D.C. area. She's affiliated with the Parent Edu- Effectiveness Program, and in her work, she has counted, counseled numerous families on how to have more meaningful relationships and a more fulfilling family life. So I want to welcome Emery. Thank you, Jack. Uh, nice to hear your voice and to have you on our show. Thank you. Glad to be invited to speak again. Now, Emery, in your work, your counseling practice, what are you seeing with regards to stress and children? Well, I often mention when I'm out giving a parent talk to, um, you know, neighborhood uh, nursery school groups or or PTA groups that the most common age of a stressed or an anxious child that comes to see me is seven years old, and that's that's usually quite a surprise to parents. Um, we think of our children, um, especially our young children, as having pretty happy childhoods. But, um, you know, stress is definitely showing up in kids' lives and uh, being experienced in different ways. And uh, it's, you know, I, I do start talking to kids about their worries or things that they're fearful of when they're only about seven years old. Well, what what are some of the symptoms that you see for children who are stressed? Well, there's often sleep disturbances. Uh-huh. Um, children who are lying awake at night or having a terrible time falling asleep or, um, uh, you know, fearful of what might happen during the night, you know, fear of burglars or a fear of monsters. <laughs> you also see, you know, I, I always sort of check the... Um, biological first before the psychological. So I look at it, you know, how is a child eating? How is a child sleeping? How is the child um, having problems with tummy aches or constipation? <clears throat> Things like that. Uh-huh. Now, how much of, of the stress in, ch- in the lives of children is caused um, by school and by parents' expectations about school? Well, it's, it's pretty significant. Um, 
I think our our teachers are under a huge amount of stress, yeah. and uh, my hat's off to them because they're given just you know more and more demands upon their uh, their time and their professionalism, and and literally asked to work miracles as a matter of routine, and. Um, and they know that their jobs are on the line, just as the principals know that their jobs are on the line. If they don't show, you know, through the test results, through the, the kids' grades, et cetera, that they are improving, improving, improving. And that's appropriate, I suppose, for the, the adult world of professionals. But it does filter directly down to the, the six, seven, eight-year-olds on up. And um, and it's it's giving kids you know a, a much greater um, sense of pressure uh, about making good grades than I think uh, they used to have to to experience. And um, we live in the Washington metropolitan area. We live in a, a very highly educated professional population here, one of the greatest concentrations in the country. And uh, there's. There's quite a lot of, of social and cultural expectations of of kids, you know, excelling so that they get on the fast track to success. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I hadn't been as aware of the pressure that comes just out of the atmosphere of a school. Oh, that, yeah. That the, the pressure that is generated by the, the expectations for test scores. They have pep rallies in elementary schools to get the kids all excited and motivated to do their best on the standardized tests. Yeah, and that yeah. when and when that pressure then is conveyed to the teachers that lives in the classroom, and I know uh, children are incredibly sensitive to the emotional life of the adults around them, especially the seven-year-old, the eight-year-old, the nine-year-old. Yeah. Um, what what about the children's sensitivity to the emotional state of their parents and and parent expectations? Well, it's it's just the same as their sensitivity to the teachers, except um, even more, you know, highly magnified because a child's relationship with their parent is so essential for their sense of who they are and whether or not they're okay, whether or not they're a good kid or not. Um, they see that directly through their eye, their parents' eyes and their parents' um, uh, emotions, as you say. So it's even, you know, even a child, um, a spunky, oppositional, in-your-face, giving you a hard time, screaming, I don't care, child, cares. And they care deeply and intensely and profoundly. And the, the force of their opposition is is a pretty clear indication of how much they care. Now, my memory of a child is that my parents' expectations um, for me, they sort of slept most of the time, and then they'd wake up if there was a report card or if there was a parent conference. But one of the places where that expectation usually got called into question was when I had homework. And I was just wondering how much stress is due to homework. Well, it's it certainly is a lot. Um, you know, so many adults I talk to, and I include myself in this category, after a certain point, I think, to the best of my knowledge, after about maybe fourth or fifth grade, I don't remember my parents asking me if I had homework. Uh-huh. And, they, and literally not asking me if my homework was done. 
And I wasn't um, a challenging kid, and I didn't have school problems. They weren't getting calls from the teacher. But it was what I remember was pretty much a sense of that was my business, and I was, you know, they had no reason to think that I couldn't handle that and take care of that part of my my job. And, um, but in, you know, today's families, um, and of course I live and work in the D.C. metropolitan area. I don't know if this is common around the country, but I'll assume that it is from what we see in the popular press about this. Parents are so highly involved in their kids' schoolwork. And is this true? They, they're getting a lot of, of letters and emails and messages from the school to be an, an active, involved, caring parent. But um, it's, it's, done with, um, it's not done with a light touch. It's, it's pretty yeah, heavy-handed yeah. in many cases. Yeah. And it, such things as um, the Montgomery County Public Schools have an Edline program where parents can go online and see what their children's grades are and what you know, material schoolwork is outstanding, what hasn't been turned in. And um, that takes parent involvement and supervision to... So, so could you say that again? You mean a parent can go online yeah. and check on their child? Yes. Wow. Yes. Oh, my goodness. And now I'll, I'll speak only as a family therapist, that every time this comes up in my work, when I'm talking to a family and uh, talking to a child about this, um, I can say unreservedly that I hate Edline. Yeah. I don't see one benefit to a child in terms of this increasing their parents' loving concern or intention or encouragement. What I see is parents who are drawn in to overmanaging, over-supervising, and critically taking too much responsibility for the child's schoolwork, yeah. for the child's success in school. And also, you know, if any uh, Montgomery County parents are listening in to me and saying, but, 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 let me just say that it's also been my experience as a parent of two kids going through Montgomery County Public Schools, Edline is never up to date. The teachers, bless their hearts, they'd have to be up till midnight, 2 a.m. Yeah. to keep it completely up to date because the information on Edline is, is provided by the teachers and it has to be entered you know, sometime, and they ha- they also have to be doing their lessons, you know, and re- checking homework and and grading papers. So it's very hard for them to keep it up to date. Yeah, how could they? Exactly. We're speaking it's, to uh, yeah. yes. We're, <laughs> <laughs> we're speaking tonight with Emery Luce Baldwin, and this is on parenting. And we invite you to call in if you have questions and thoughts about Edline. Our number at the studio is two zero two five eight eight zero eight nine three. Now. Emery, I, I would have been in a whole lot of trouble if there was something like that when I was a kid, and I, I wasn't a bad student. Um, you know, I did did my homework I, as a rule. My brother had much more challenges with his homework than I did. What kind of a child has the greatest difficulty with homework? What kind of a child yeah. has the greatest difficulty? Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, let's face it. You know, childhood is all about growing and maturing and developing what we usually call executive functioning now. Uh And executive functioning is that part of the prefrontal cortex of the brain that is responsible for time, for anticipation, for planning, for 
um, setting goals, for ideas, and for learning. And the, the key thing is, of course, is that the prefrontal cortex isn't considered mature until about age 25. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so childhood, with all of its, you know, forgotten library books and overdue assignments and where did I put my sneakers and, um, and how soon should I get started on my book report for the end of the week, childhood is one long, slow period where children are growing and developing this part of their brain of learning how to anticipate, to plan, to take responsibility, to manage their time and their work effort. I I love what Mel Levine, who wrote The Myth of Laziness, said about this. Um, He said that, you know, teachers are responsible for teaching children how to learn, but parents are responsible for teaching children how to work. And that's the key thing, is, is letting kids... Um, have practice, practice, practice with this in terms of um, figuring out how to do it right and learning from mistakes what doesn't work. And um, and the brain, we also know that the brain only grows as the brain is challenged to grow. Mm-hmm. So parents have to dance that very delicate dance of being involved enough to encourage, to guide, to lead, to teach, but not over-involved to the extent that they inhibit their children's learning because the parents taken responsibility for planning, managing the time, anticipating, you know, those sorts of things. Now, Emory, you mentioned book reports and and when I think, and and assignments that take longer because those are the ones that can throw children because you put it off, you put it off, and then it starts to loom. It's a large, unpleasant thing that's coming, and that almost freezes you. And, and, uh, and what, what, it, what would happen to me is that I would get distracted. I would find all number of distractions that would keep me from my work. And um, is this still a problem today? Is it more of a problem today? Well, sure. I mean, it's, it has to be more of a problem in terms of the fact that look how many more distractions we have today. You know, my, my kids, I tell them that when I was their age, we, there were three television channels, you know, three major networks uh-huh. and a few um, uh, local stations. And there were very limited choices of, of even what was to watch on TV, and that's before the computer, it's before MP3 players, it's before all of that stuff. So, world of um, of tremendous stimulation opportunities for distraction. Um, one of the things is that we're starting children at working at a computer, for instance, pretty yes. young. To, to do a book report, to do some research, um, to uh, type their papers or type their, um, up their assignment for school. And I love the computer. I use the computer. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful resource. But it's also like sitting down at the biggest, you know, in the, in the biggest movie theater, magazine, um, uh, cartoon uh, source, etc., in the whole world, plus your friends might be popping up in the corner of the screen saying, hey, you want to talk? You want to chat? In other words, IMing or, or emailing. And that's, that's extremely distracting and extremely difficult to resist, especially for a young child who has 
you know, an immature sense of executive functioning. And yet this is the world they're growing up in. So they also have to learn how to, to manage it. And there again, parents have to kind of dance that delicate dance of being involved, encouraging, teaching, supervising, but not um, not taking full responsibility for it so that the children aren't learning how to become gradually become more responsible for themselves. We're speaking with Emery Luce Baldwin here on On Parenting, and we invite you to call in. Our studio number is 202-588-0893. Now, Emery, your description of this, uh, I think, gives us a good picture of, of the difficulties, the challenges that children face when they sit down to do their work on a computer. What would you tell a parent to do? What, what can a parent do to help the children? The bottom line is that the parent is still the parent. And if you see that your child is really struggling and cannot resist the lure of the distraction of, say, the Internet or the distraction of the TV or the distraction of friends calling, well, then the parent can step up and be a parent. They can answer the phone and, you know, no, Mary, Sally can't come and talk to you. She's, this is her, our homework hour, and I hope you'll remember that next time and not call during homework hour or um, disconnecting the Internet, or not, a, you know, encouraging that no, nobody in the family had, turns on the TV or is playing music um, during a, a, some homework time, that there's, this is a quiet work time. And so just as a, an adult wouldn't go into the office and think it's acceptable if um, they have to focus and, and work on an assignment and there's, you know, endless interruptions and distractions, well, it's the same for kids. You know, protect, protect the environment and um, to give them the best opportunities for success. You know, do what you can do as a parent to structure and, and protect and um, safeguard this, this sense of environment that's going to give them the best chance for success. Now, often when parents encounter a problem like this, they have to sit down and talk to the children. You know, to try to say something, to help them realize the importance of the work they have to do, to um, realize the importance of accepting this responsibility and kind of uh, focusing on it. But motivating children is really a challenging assignment. And how, how, are, how are parents doing when they, when they sit down to have this conversation? Because, you know, it, it can go either way, can it? Right. And, and I think... Um Motivation is something that a lot of people have a sense of confusion about. Um, I think that maybe it's the world of professional sports or something that has given people the idea that motivation is something like um, cheerleading and screaming complaints to the referee and, um, and you know, fighting for win-win-win at any price. Or I don't know. Um, but it, it, that certainly isn't going to work when it comes to... Uh, helping children find their own source of motivation, excite their own interest and desire for success. The good news is, is that it's not nearly as hard as almost everybody thinks it's going to be. Um, and you know, I've talked to some of the most discouraged kids in the world who have, you know, terrible grades, who maybe have not been doing well or, or struggling in school for years. And without exception, I've never met a child who is satisfied with that. Uh -huh. um, 
I, without exception, I find that every kid would like to be doing, would like to be successful. And almost always what I find is that kids who have grown up in homes where um, the parents are educated and living, you know, in a, um, uh, doing interesting jobs, living at a certain standard of, of life that has its comforts, that no child is interested in downward mobility. They would like to be living at the same, the same quality of life that they have now, if not a little bit better, you know, the American dream. And, um, and what, what young kids, of course, um, often leave out of the picture is the connecting the dots. To get from here where I am in the seventh grade making C's and D's to my, you know, desire to be a uh, fashion designer with a beautiful apartment in Manhattan in my 20s, how, what's going to get me there? And, and when, I, when I talk to children that even if they don't like math, um, becoming better at math is going to help improve their, their uh, success, they, they really buy into that pretty well. They buy into that quite readily. Um, but this is all about, in, you know, uh, interesting the child in their own success and encouraging them to make a plan for their own success. And that's a very different thing from what parents typically do to try to, quote, motivate, unquote, their children. And what they often do is um, uh, shaming uh, don't you want to do better? How how would you feel if your grandmother knew what kind of grades you were making? Um, don't you you know? Aren't you embarrassed in front of your friends? And that's shaming is never encouraging or strengthening. It's it's belittling. Or what parents will do is um, rewards offer rewards, and that's a slippery slope. The the temptation of, of rewards and uh, is very understandable because in the short term rewards definitely work, but there's there are hundreds, if not thousands, of studies about how to motivate children to learn. The educational, um, you know, of the educational world would love to find the secret formula to motivate children to learn. Mm-hmm. And what Jane Healy talks about in her books about children and learning is that motivation is an emotional state and it's linked with um, curiosity and it's, and challenge and anticipation and and the way to to uh, invite children or encourage children to find their own sources of motivation is to use those kinds of emotional states of curiosity anticipation and challenge so by getting the children to see the challenge of, 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 of the difficulty that's ahead of them, the, the opportunity that can come by meeting that challenge, then they get this buy-in that's going to help them. And I, I'm really taken by this idea that, that children do want to do well, that even the children who are having challenges at school, they want to do better. And, and, yeah. and how do we help them and believe in them so that they can effectively mm-hmm. uh, succeed in, in, in turning this around. Uh, we're right. speaking tonight with Emery Luce Baldwin, a family therapist here on, on Parenting, and we invite you to call in at 202-588-0893. Now, Emery, I, I, I remember um, 
my son was uh, playing baseball in college, and we went to see him play. And the team played, they were a good team, but they played really poorly. Uh, they lost a doubleheader. It was a rainy day. They had to feel miserable. Mm. And uh, I, I asked him afterwards, I said, what did your coach say to you? And he said that this coach said, you know, you're better than this. Mm. And, and it reminded me that by really pointing toward what a child's capable of doing, rather than shaming, just saying, you know, you can do this. You're, yeah. you're a good student. You can do this. And it helps them. And, and it gives them a sense that this is true, that we see oh, their yeah. best. And what coaches don't have and what teachers don't have, parents do have. And that is they have the history, the knowledge of the history of this child from the, from the very beginning. And it's possible to say to a child, um, you know, not just generally what the coach was saying, that you're better than this, but to remind a child of times in their past when they, when they did the right thing, even though it was the hardest thing to do, or when they d- didn't let their fears stop them, but they challenged themselves to climb over that rock wall or to finish the hike or to get back on the bicycle that they were trying to learn how to ride. Or even to remind a child or tell the child a story of things they wouldn't remember from when they were a baby, such as, I can remember you were only 10 months old, you were only this tall, but there was nothing that would stop you from climbing up those stairs. You were fearless, you were determined, you were so strong, and you were so proud when you got to the top. If you could do that when you were only nine months old, Imagine what you can do when you're 12 years old and you're looking at your algebra book. Yeah. Yeah, very good point. It's beautiful, and and what's more, it's it's one of those moments I've never had. I've, you know, I always ask parents when I tell that story, let me know if your child says, nah. Because, it's yeah. you know, oftentimes parents will think, when, especially like in a parenting class or in, I'm just doing a parenting um, consultation, the children aren't there with me. That um, oh that you know it sounds so good when you say that Emory but I'm sure my kids would think this is weird or or laugh or you know why are you talking that way and I and I've always put out the challenge you try it and call me up and tell me if it blows up in your face yeah. and because what we find is that even if a child has a hard time believing it they want to believe it's true. Who, who, who out there doesn't want to believe that's true about themselves, that they are stronger and braver and more capable than they think, even think they are when they're sad or, or frustrated or discouraged? Yeah. We're going to turn to the phone now. We have a caller. Ada, are you there? Yeah. Oh, uh, I'm just driving along listening. And um, I did want to comment because it seems that kids do want to do well, want to achieve but what I'm what I'm seeing, what I'm feeling is that they don't want to work at it. It's like there is a there is a uh, a lack of excellence, or or the the need or the want, the striving to be excellent. They'll find with average and not trying to reach above that. And it seems a lot of the kids of this day who's had who have successful parents, um, you know tend to rely on their parents and not try to, as, you know, Franz Fanon said, we're supposed to do, each is supposed to do better than the former generation. Mm-hmm. It's not happening. The kids are just kind of at a, I don't know. I, I don't know. Can you, can you address that or, or hey, comment on that? Ada, thank you for your question. It's an excellent one. 
Uh, Emory, what do you see? Sure. Um, well, I, I appreciated his concern because I hear this from, from other friends and colleagues, people who are professors at universities or people who are uh, working with um, uh, young adults who are coming out of colleges, high schools and colleges in their 20s, you know, in early, late 20s, etc. And they do say that they're seeing a remarkable number of kids who have a strong sense of entitlement to make a good income, to not have to work very hard, to be praised and um, uh, have their way made smoother for them um, without having to work hard. And I wonder, you know, going back to what Mel Levine said about um, teachers are responsible for teaching children how to learn and parents children how to work. Yeah. yeah, it is a parent's responsibility. And I think one of the things that we aren't always att- attentive to is that all work that children do builds a capacity um, that helps create the kind of habits that make children successful in school. So when a child is asked to help at home, mm-hmm. that really helps them learn how to work at school. When they're asked to clean their room or when they're asked to uh, clean a different room in the house, the kitchen, or to, to clean up after a dinner. All of that builds the kind of capacity. And in the same way that we grow our brain capacity mm-hmm. through challenge, I believe that we grow our ability to do work through uh, a repetition of that experience and through challenge. Um, we're going to come back after a short break, and we're going to speak uh, more with Emery Luce Baldwin about what, a, what can a parent do to help build this child up to empower children. Merry Christmas. This is Roach Brown, host of Crossroads, which airs on the first Monday of each month here on WPFW. We are inviting you to give love on Christmas Day, a free Christmas Day dinner and live broadcast from 12 noon to 3 p.m. on Christmas Day at Tories at Wilson's Restaurant, located at George Avenue and V Street Northwest, across the street from Howard University Hospital. Tories at Wilson's, along with the Inner Voices, are having a Christmas Day dinner for the homeless, elderly, and ex-offenders. Give love on Christmas Day. Tune in or just stop by and give love in person. Torizette Wilsons and the Inner Voices want to share love on Christmas Day. And Merry Christmas to all of you. Welcome back to On Parenting. This is your host, Jack Petrash, here at WPFW 89.3. Pacifica Radio, and we're speaking tonight uh, with Emery Luce Baldwin. And Emery, welcome back. Hi, Jack. <laughs> Emery, we have a few more minutes um, for our conversation, and I wanted to turn now and ask you what parents can do to help empower their children. Well, I was by the caller's question about um, children who are not. Um, uh, you know, seemingly willing to embrace work or the necessity of work. And so I think one way that we can empower children is by, you know, con- kind of intentionally teaching them uh, an appreciation of work and through our own appreciation of our jobs and what we contribute. You don't have to have the perfect job or the best-paying job 
out there to be able to come home and say, you know, to talk about satisfying experiences where I was able to solve a customer's problem or I made somebody's day a little bit brighter or um, or I was able to kind of stand firm and not let my federal program be be um, diminished in, in the way I didn't want it to have it cut back. Um, because I think it's off, you know, we come home to relax, to unwind, to vent, and it's pretty common, I think, for grown-ups to complain about their job or the jerk they have to work with or how they're unreasonable their boss is. And, and for kids to miss the other side of the story about how hard they worked to get that job, how important um, their path is, that even if they're not in the, the perfect job, um, but that they, their work is still meaningful to them and valuable to them. So that might be one way that, that parents can strengthen children in the sense of understanding the, the value and, and meaning of work in their lives. Uh-huh. And, and Emery, um, can we speak a little bit about the kind of work that parents can give their children at home? Because um, I think when I think of Ada's call and children not being re- uh, eager to work, I think of how a parent can help instill a better attitude about the everyday work that we all have to do. Yeah. And it's it's I know it can be frustrating for parents especially if they haven't instilled in their children an expectation that that their contribution is necessary and and valued from an early age on. Any parents out there of young children start early. You know, you can never start too That's early. Right. Um, even a, a toddler can bring you a tissue or help fish the socks out of the basket of clean laundry. Children love to contribute, and they love to be part of the adult world of work. And if you don't believe me, um, show a three-year-old uh, how to swish out a toilet with a toilet brush, and <laughs> you've made them so happy. <laughs> so, so even the jobs we think are the, the stinkiest jobs are ones that, that kids will often think are fascinating and wonderful. Um, but, you know, even if you're starting uh, later and uh, with an older child, you know, it's pretty typical, uh, an older um, 9, 10, 11, or up into the teen years, the child's going to look at you and go, why should I do that? You know, it's not my job, and, you know, um, to give you pushback on that. And it, it's that's just, um, that's just trash talk. That's not really very important. Um that's their job, is to challenge that. Right. And what's wonderful to do is to kind of challenge them back. Well, you know, sweetie, how, could you help me understand how it could be fair to, as a, you know, a big, strong 10-year-old um, living in a home where all of your needs are provided and yet not to contribute? You know, if that makes sense to you, I accept that. But it sure doesn't make any sense to me. Would you mind explaining it to me? Yeah. Help, and, help and challenge children to figure that out because kids do have a really good natural gyroscope, I think, of right and wrong and fair and unfair. And and like I said, I think you know, just trusting that kids really do want to be good people doing the right thing if they're and, and stimulate that in them, to really yeah. inspire that in them. That's right, and to call on their best. Yeah, yeah. Now, Emery, we've come to the end of our time, and I think it's just gone too fast. It's the same for me too, Jack. It's yeah. always great to talk to you. It's great to have you on the show, and I, I think that, that what you bring to the parent concerns um, 
the advice you bring is just so helpful. So thank you so much for being a guest on on Parenting Tonight, and um, we hope to have you on again in the in the coming months. Oh, I look forward to it. Thanks again. Happy holidays, everybody. Thank you, Emory. Mm-hmm. Well, now that our interview is is complete, we're going to turn to our story for this evening, and. Um, <laughs> seconds. The story of the two Ivans from old Russia. There were once two brothers, and they were both named Ivan. One was Ivan the Rich. Ivan the Rich He had horses that were sleek. He had sheep in the meadow and cows by the creek. He had a barn full of hay and cupboards full of food. He had everything he wanted, and he was sure that that was good. But Ivan the Rich had no children. Now Ivan the Poor, he had seven children, and they all sat in a group, and they begged for buckwheat porridge and cabbage soup, but their bellies were all empty, and that just made them sad, and the cupboards were all bare, and Ivan the Poor knew that was bad. So Ivan the Poor made his way over to his brother's house and knocked on that door, and when the door opened, there was Ivan the Rich, and he looked at his brother, and he said, Ivan the Poor, what brings you to my door? And Ivan the Poor said, Ah, my children are hungry. And I was wondering if you had some food that you could lend. And Ivan the Rich pointed to the kitchen and he said, Yes, on top of the stove is some soup. You may take a bowl, but bring me back a whole pot in return. What, said Ivan the Poor? A whole pot for a bowl. That's not fair. Take it or leave it, said Ivan the Rich. Now Ivan the Poor had no choice. He went into the kitchen area. He took a bowl. He filled it with soup. And he walked back to the door and stepped out into the street. But on this cold day, it was frigidly cold. And Jack Frost was about freezing the puddles, freezing the roadway, putting frost on the windows. And when Jack Frost saw Ivan the Poor holding that bowl of soup, he went up to him and he froze his toes and again his nose. And then all of that cabbage soup, Jack Frost froze. And as that soup congealed into a little cube of ice, the flakes started breaking off and the wind blew it away. And when Ivan the poor looked, there was no soup at all. And he knew Jack Frost had done him a poor turn. And he raised his fist and he said, Jack Frost, I will get you for this. And Ivan the poor raced down the road and Jack Frost fled. Jack Frost fled into the forest, and Ivan the Poor ran after him. Jack Frost climbed into the hollow of a tree, and Ivan the Poor climbed right in after him. And Jack Frost turned and said, Ivan the Poor, 
what is it you want? And Ivan the poor said, I will tell you. My children are hungry, and I had a bowl of soup, and you froze it, and it crumbled away. Ah, said Jack Frost, if I did that, I should do something to make up for it. Here, I'll give you a gift. Here's a tablecloth. A tablecloth, said Ivan the poor. I told you I have no food. No, no, it is a magic tablecloth, said Jack Frost. Spread it on the table and just say, tablecloth, tablecloth. Give me something good to eat, and it will. Oh, thank you, said Ivan the poor. And he took the tablecloth home. And when he got to his house and to his hungry children, he called them around and he spread the tablecloth on the table. And then he said, tablecloth, tablecloth, give me something good to eat. And lo and behold, there was a great big ham to please the eye and a sweet delicious apple pie and a bowl of potatoes and buttered bread and the children gathered round and they were oh so well fed and as their bellies grew their smiles returned and as the children were enjoying their dessert there was a knock at the door and when Ivan the poor went to it there was his brother Ivan the rich and when he peered into the house and saw the food he said what's this I thought you had no food. Were you lying to me, Ivan the poor? Oh, no, said Ivan the poor. I wouldn't lie. I walked out of your house with soup, and Jack Frost froze it. And when it crumbled away, he gave me this tablecloth in return. And it's a magic tablecloth. All you have to say is, tablecloth, tablecloth, give me something to eat, and it does. Oh, said Ivan the rich, that's just what I need. We're having a party tonight, and our cook is off. Can I borrow your tablecloth? I'll give you back the very one you gave me. Sure, said Ivan the poor. You take it. Well, Ivan the rich took that tablecloth, and he took it home, and he spread it out on his table. And when he did, he said, Tablecloth, tablecloth, give me something good to eat. And when he had enough food, he asked for more, and he put the food in his cupboards, even though they were full. And he took the tablecloth, and he folded it up. And he took that, and he put it away. And he took out a tablecloth that looked just like the magic one. And he brought that back to Ivan the poor. Now Ivan the poor was unsuspecting. And when he put that tablecloth out on the table the next day, and said, Tablecloth, tablecloth, give me something good to eat. Nothing happened. There was no food. He immediately tried again. He said, tablecloth, tablecloth, give me something good to eat, please. It didn't work. He folded the tablecloth up and marched over to his brother's house and said, what did you do to my tablecloth? And Ivan the rich said, I don't know what you're talking about. I gave you back the very tablecloth you gave me. Now Ivan the poor had no recourse. He went home, and it wasn't long before his children were hungry again. And oh, they sat again, all in a group, begging for buckwheat porridge and cabbage soup, and their bellies were all empty, and that just made him sad. And Ivan missed the tablecloth, and that just made him mad. And so he walked back across the street and knocked upon his brother's door. 
And Ivan the rich came out and said, Ivan the poor, what brings you back to my door? Ah, said Ivan the poor, I was wondering, do you have any more of that soup? No, said Ivan the rich, I don't. But there's some jelly in the kitchen. You may take a plate of jelly, just a slice, but bring me back a whole bowl. A whole bowl, said Ivan the poor, for a slice of jelly. Take it or leave it, said Ivan the rich. So Ivan the poor went into the kitchen and he sliced off some of that grape jelly and put it on a plate. But this day when he stepped outside, it was not cold. Jack Frost was not about. It was a sunny, warm day. And when the sun shone down on Ivan the poor, he opened his collar and he opened his coat. But the sun was so bright that when it shone on the jelly, it melted it into a big purple puddle and it spilled out onto the ground. And when Ivan the poor saw the puddle of jelly and saw it dripping onto the ground, he looked up at the sun and he said, son, you've done me an ill turn and I will get you. And he went off after the sun. Well, that sun traveled all day. It went over the hills and Ivan the poor went after him. It went over the meadows, and Ivan the poor walked after it. And finally, at the end of the day, the sun came to the end of the world, to the place where it goes to sleep at night. And Ivan the poor walked right up to the sun, and the sun looked at him and said, Ivan the poor, is that you? Yes, it is, said Ivan the poor. I thought I saw you walking below me all day. Why are you following me? I'll tell you, said Ivan the poor, my children are hungry and I had a plate full of jelly and you melted it and it all dripped onto the ground. Oh, said the son, if I did that, I should do something nice for you. Here, take one of my goats. Oh, I can't take a goat, said Ivan the poor. I don't even have food to feed my children. Oh, no, said the son, this is a magic goat. If you feed it acorns and rub its horns, it gives gold instead of milk. Now take it. And so Ivan the poor tied a rope around the goat and he led it back. And on the way he filled his pockets to bulging with acorns, walked through the forest and gathered them up. And when he came home, he fed those acorns to the goat. And then he took a pail and he milked that goat. And sure enough, instead of milk, gold came from that goat. And he had a bucket full of gold. And when he set some on the table, it would harden into little gold coins. And he was just stacking those gold coins up and thinking of what food he could buy for his children when there was a knock at the door. And there was Ivan the rich. And he looked at Ivan the poor and he looked at the gold and he said, What is this? Are you a thief? Have you been stealing? Oh, no, said Ivan the poor. I would never steal a thing. When I came to your house and got that plate of jelly, the sun melted it. And when I told him about it, he gave me a goat. It's a magic goat. You just feed it acorns and rub its horns, and it gives gold instead of milk. Well, said Ivan the rich, 
That's just what I need. The bank is closed today, and I'm short of money. May I borrow your goat? I'll bring you back the very one you give me. All right, said Ivan the poor. Well, as you can imagine, Ivan the rich took that goat to his house, and he fed it acorns, and when he milked it, he filled buckets full of gold, and he turned them into gold coins, and he stacked them high, and he put them in a sack, and he put them away where he kept all his money. And then he took the goat to his barn, and he put it in one of the stalls, and he took out a goat that looked just like it, and brought it back to his brother. And when Ivan the poor tried to feed that goat acorns and rub its horns and milk it, it gave no gold. And it wasn't long before the coins that Ivan the poor had were all spent. And after time, his food was gone and his children were hungry. And now once again they sat in a group begging for buckwheat porridge and cabbage soup. And Ivan the poor went off to his brother's house one more time. And when he came to the door and knocked upon it, Ivan the rich looked out and said, What is it you want now, Ivan the poor? Well, I was wondering if you had any of that soup or that jelly. No, said Ivan the rich, but there's some flour on the table. You may take a bowl of flour but bring me back a whole sack in return. What? said Ivan the poor. A whole sack in return for a bowl? Take it or leave it, said Ivan the rich. So Ivan the poor took it. And when he walked out with the bowl, brimming with flour, it was a windy day. The north wind was blowing up and down the streets. And when it blew past Ivan the poor, it blew all that flour out of the bowl and on to the ground. Well, this, for Ivan the poor, was the last straw. He put down that bowl and shook his fist at the wind, and he said, North wind, I will get you for this. And he ran after the wind. Now the wind blew up the street, and Ivan the poor raced after it. The wind blew across the fields, and Ivan the poor raced after him. The wind blew into the forest and into a snowbank. And Ivan the poor raced after him and climbed right in. And the wind turned and said, Ivan the poor, why are you dogging my steps so? I'll tell you, said Ivan the poor, I had a magic tablecloth and my brother took it. And I had a magic goat and he took that too. And my children are hungry and I don't know what to do. Ah, oh, said the wind, I think I have just what you need. Here. And with that, the north wind took out a large sack. What is this, said Ivan the poor. It is a magic sack, said the wind. You place it down and say, two out of the sack, and two will come out and do whatever needs to be done. And when they're done, you say two back in the sack, and they will return. Oh, thank you, said Ivan the poor. And with that, he took the sack and walked home. And when he set it down, he said, two out of the sack. And the sack untied, and two large sticks came out. And they rose up into the air, and they came over Ivan the poor's head. And then they whacked him, and they said, Ivan the rich thinks of nothing but gain. 
You better be smart or he'll trick you again. Whack, whack, the sticks hit him again. Ivan the rich thinks of nothing but gain. You better be smart or he'll trick you again. Whack, whack, and Ivan the poor stammered, two back in the sack. And the two sticks stopped in midair and went back in the sack. And the sack tied itself up. Just then there was a knock at the door. And when Ivan the poor opened it, there was Ivan the rich. And he looked in and he said, Ivan the poor, I saw you carrying a sack. What do you have? Oh, he said, I have a magic sack. All you have to say is two out of the sack and they'll come out and do whatever needs to be done. Oh, is that true? Said Ivan the rich. That's just what I need. I've got a fence that needs mending. I've got a roof that needs fixing. Can I borrow your sack? I'll bring you back the very one you gave me. Yes, said Ivan the poor, you can. And so Ivan the rich took the sack home. And when he went into his house, he locked the door. And he put the sack on his table. And he said, two, out of the sack. And the sack untied. And out of it came two large, thick sticks, and they rose up in the air. And Ivan the rich looked at them, and they rose over his head. And then they proceeded to whack him, whack, right across the ear, whack. And they said, what belongs to your brother is not for you. Give back the goat and the tablecloth too. Whack, whack. Ivan the rich ran for the door, but it was locked and the sacks caught him and whacked him again. What belongs to your brother is not for you. Give back the goat and the tablecloth too. Whack. Ivan the rich ran across the street. He ran to Ivan the poor's door. He knocked. And when Ivan the poor answered, he said, Ivan the poor, make the stick stop. I'll give you back your goat. I'll give you back your tablecloth. And Ivan the poor said, Two, back in the sack. And the six sticks stopped in midair and returned to Ivan the Rich's house and went back in the sack. Well, that day, Ivan the Rich brought back the sack. Gladly, he brought back the tablecloth, as promised, and the goat that gave gold when you rubbed its horns and fed it acorns. And Ivan the poor was poor no longer. And now his seven children they sit in a group and they eat buckwheat porridge and they eat cabbage soup and their bowls are made of china and their spoons are made of wood and their bellies are all full and that makes them feel so good. And of course, they lived happily ever after. Now that's our story for tonight. Usually our stories come to you by way of Kalanji Lushagun. But with the snow this past week, Kalanji's story will have to wait till January. But it is a good one. And all of you who are in our listening audience, we invite you to turn in, to tune in on the third Monday of every month at 7 o'clock to listen to On Parenting. We're going to have good shows in the new year. We're going to have Kim John Payne as one of our guests. He's going to be speaking about his new book, Simplicity Parenting. Kim will be our guest, and I'm sure he will have interesting things to say, things very much related to what we spoke about tonight, stress in the lives of children, and what parents can do to help diminish that stress. We're going to have Lisa Bennett 
author of the book Smart by Nature. And we're going to be talking about sustainable schools, what we can do to help our children live in concert with the earth. And she'll be our guest. We'll have Dr. Joanna Razi on to talk with us about children's immune systems and how we can strengthen them so that their health is really safeguarded in a winter of flu and colds and sore throats, what we can do to make our children strong. And of course, in the new year, we will have our stories for children as we do every show. And Kalanje Lushagun will be our storyteller. And we look forward to his stories in the new year. So we invite you, we invite you to tune in every third Monday of the month at 7 o'clock to On Parenting and to call in to our show and ask your questions about this important work of raising healthy children. Now tonight, we're going to have a poem before we close. And this is a poem from a poetry book called Disrupting Consensus. It's by the Maryland Poet Laureate, Michael Glazer. And it's a poem about school. And it has to do with the stress that children experience in school with tests. And it's called A Letter to My Fifth Grade Teacher. Dear Miss Lorenz, I'm writing because I was remembering you today. How soft and kind your voice was and how your eyes sparkled with laughter and light, which is why I wanted to impress you and why I was so afraid of spelling where I knew you would discover that I was just another stupid kid. And so on the day of the big spelling test, I made that tiny piece of paper and when we put our books away, I cupped it in my hand for use only when necessary. And you moved up and down the rows of our desks, pronouncing words until you stopped next to me, called out a word, and when everyone was writing, reached into my clenched fist and took the paper and then walked on. You never made an example of me, never spoke to my parents about it, or even mentioned it to me, and you never treated me differently either, just went on as though nothing had happened. But of course, something did. I never cheated again, Miss Lorenz. I never stole another candy bar or money from my mother's purse or the top of my father's dresser. And I'm writing to thank you for treating me with dignity, even as you caught me red-handed in sin. It was as close to grace as I have ever been. Perhaps someday I'll know it once again. Michael Glazer from his book, Disrupting Consensus. And I want to say good night to you now and thank you for listening. And thank you to our caller tonight. I want to thank our engineers, T and John, for their good work here. And I want to thank Emery Luce Baldwin for being our guest tonight. And I want to say to all my third graders at the Walter School, good night, children, and may these wonderful winter stars watch over you. Your children are not your children.